Praise ye the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him for his mighty acts. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. And everything that hath breath, praise the Lord. Praise ye the Lord. For our hearts and heads a sound of preparation for worship. Let us pray. Indeed, God, as we sung this song of praise, it is indeed well with our soul because you are in control, Lord, and no matter what is going on and what is happening, Lord, it is part of your plan and is done for your glory and for our good. Help us to that, to that end, Lord, to put aside all distractions and to know that it, things are done for our good. And may we continue to praise you and hear your word this evening for our benefit and for your glory. Amen. We read, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up thine head, forget not the humble. So he describes, obviously, in the first part of the psalm, the wickedness and the wicked ones. And the It's not on? Oh, I'm muted. There we go. Someone put a muzzle on me. Electronic muzzle. <clears throat> so the first part of the psalm, he describes the wicked that are coming after him. And I'll remind you again, uh, many of these psalms are not just him as a shepherd boy, but also as a king. To go after the king of Israel is to go after Israel, right? It's like someone trying to assassinate the president. You know, they're attacking America, attacking the church. Uh, and so this is also in the name of the church. And then in verses 12 and following the rest of the psalm, he cries out to the Lord for mercy and uh, protection from God above. And that's what we ought to do, brothers and sisters, in times of difficulty. Let us go before him with prayer and thanksgiving in our hearts. So indeed, indeed God above, we do come with thanksgiving in our heart, God. Thankful for, again, the many blessings you've given our body, the many things that we have in this nation, the freedom, uh, and Lord, the prosperity that we have, even when things are not as good as it seems, God, we still have it much better in many ways in the vast majority of the countries across this world. We're thankful, Lord, for our states and for our counties and our cities, God, in which we have police protection and medical assistance and uh, things are open, Lord, and we're not fearful of people attacking us in our homes. So, God, we are thankful for these things, and above all, thankful for mercy we have through Christ Jesus and the many blessings we have through the church and the Bible and the many things you've given us, God. Pray, God, this evening, for the foreign mission efforts of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, uh, that, Lord, they would prove fruitful, that, Lord, we would continue to give wisdom to the denomination, to the presbyteries and to the churches involved in foreign missions, God, uh, there in Haiti, uh, there in South America, and in Europe, Lord, and in Asia, Parts of Africa, God, and we have contacts, Lord, outside our denomination, such as Middle East Reform Fellowship and uh, Cyprus, Lord. We pray for them as well, and that, God, you would help them understand what they need to do and how to speak and to meet people, Lord, and to prepare themselves and equip themselves and find out where they are, God, and open their hearts, Lord, to the message of Jesus Christ. Help them establish native churches that would raise up pastors and leaders who understand the people who grew up with them, Lord, and can therefore lead them not as strangers, but as those who've been part of their life. And so, God, we pray that we continue such a model as we had in our uh, foreign missions, Lord, in particular Africa, and that you would prove uh, in your providence, God, that you would multiply and bring fruit to that end. We ask, God, for continued unity as a denomination, Lord, the board, uh, God, and as presbyteries and as local churches, as we decide what to do with the monies, who, who to call as a missionary, Lord, and the like, and resources and how to allocate them, do it in unity. God, if not in full agreement, certainly in submission to the brethren, God, and it's not the end of the world if things are decided differently, for your word has not given us all these details. You've given us freedom in this regard and to stand firm in our liberty and to vote to make a decision of how to best use our funds and our resources and who to decide and hire as long as not in violation of your word. And we pray and ask, God, for the missionaries and their families, that you would strengthen them, God, that you'd give them what they need to better understand the language, to help especially their Children, Lord, who live in a strange land, it's very hard to grow up that way, Lord, 
and uh, that you would protect them from any ailments that are foreign to Americans and help them, Lord, to acclimate to the culture and not to the sins of the culture, God. We ask and pray for our civil magistrate, both locally and at state level, God, that you continue to watch over them and use them in your providence to protect your church, to protect us, God, again, as we prayed in our thanksgiving, uh, from criminals and from sicknesses and the like that would continue, Lord, and not be used against us. We ask, God, that you continue to maintain a good economy and employment, Lord, for our neighbors, God, for those who love our neighbors, Lord. We wish the best for them that way. And, of course, ultimately, we wish for their salvation. And we ask, God, that we maintain a strong economy for us here and uh, also good budgets. And that's, again, the leaders of our local and state straits, uh, even the police, Lord, and the judges would do the right thing in spite of not being Believers, Lord, we know the law of God is written on their hearts as much as they wish to deface it and rub it away. They still follow lots of it, God, because they can't help being made in your image, although fallen. The Lord may again be used for the good of this nation and for the good of us here in Denver and in the surrounding areas. We pray for our continued freedom, God, that we have these things both politically and socially. We lift up our families before you, Lord, that we continue to have love and patience with one another and, Lord, to continue to do our due diligence and duty to have obedience to whom we are called to submit, Lord, in our families and in our businesses and in our churches and the like. We ask God also for our vocations and callings in life, which include our duties and responsibilities, that we would continue to do these things with patience and to be encouraged, God, that you are with us this week and that one day at a time we can do these things, whether we are home or abroad, whether we're retired or not, uh, whether we are dealing with difficulties or everything's A-OK, God, that we are called to do what we can with our abilities that you've given us, Lord, as stewards to your glory and for the good of our friends and our church and especially for your kingdom. In your name alone we pray. Amen. With these tithes and offerings, God, we lift them up before you. And may you accept them, Lord, and accept our hearts offered and our lives before you. In your name we pray, through the blood of Christ. Amen. Well, let's turn to our Bibles to Psalm 25. As you know, uh, once a month I go through the Psalms. This is why big fancy churches have someone in the background muting them. I have to remember. Thank you. <clears throat> psalm 25, we've been doing a Psalm a month. This leads us here. Let us listen attentively to the word of God. Psalm 25. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in you. Let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemies triumph over me. Indeed, let no one who waits on on you be ashamed. Let those be ashamed who deal treacherously without cause. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. On you I wait all the day. Remember, O Lord, your tender mercies and your loving kindness, for they are from old. Do not remember the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions. According to your mercy, remember me for your goodness sake, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he teaches sinners in the way. The humble, he guides in justice, and the humble, he teaches his way. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth to such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Who is the man that fears the Lord? Him shall he teach in the way he chooses. He himself shall dwell in prosperity, and his descendants shall inherit the earth. The secret of the Lord is with those who fear him, and he will show them his covenant. My eyes are ever towards the Lord, for he shall pluck my feet out of the net. Turn yourselves to me and have mercy. Turn yourself to me and have mercy on me, for I am desolate and afflicted. The troubles of my heart have enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Look on my affliction and my pain and forgive all my sins. Consider my enemies, for they are many. And they hate me with a cruel hatred. Keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed. For I put my trust in you. Integrity and uprightness preserve me. For I wait for you. Deem, O Israel. Deem Israel, O God, out of all their troubles. Let us pray. 
psalm of pray, uh, pleading, Lord, pleading of deliverance, as well as plea for forgiveness. May we understand it and apply it to our lives, Lord, that although it was 3,000 years ago, it's still relevant for us today that we see, God, that you were merciful in the Old Testament and you were merciful in the New Testament. You were merciful to David and you were merciful to us, God, and we ought to cry out to you and ask for help in times of trouble, even as we ask for forgiveness of our sins. In your name alone we pray. Psalms are beautiful poems of truth and trust. They cover a multitude of issues and human expressions and emotions, as we know. This psalm, as we read, is a cry of deliverance. He mentions it many times at the beginning, in the middle, at the end. Not deliverance from sin, but specifically from his enemies, right, outside of him, for help. But it's also a plea for deliverance from his own sins. He intertwines it in a few places in the psalm. Most of it seems to be about those who are basically harassing him without cause and without reason. So he cries out to the Lord, ever mindful, because he is humble, of his own sin. So as we go through this, and I've broken up to three parts here, it can be hard at times to break up the Psalms because to go by uh, the subject matter, there's overlap mentioned. He mentions the enemy in the first part, and then in the second part he mentions the enemy again, and in the third part that would make for an odd sermon to go that way. So I'm going verse by verse, and uh, I'll talk about the enemies and the other sections more particular. And so for the first point, plea for deliverance. Deliverance in general, as we know, it eventually be a plea for mercy from sin and a plea from mercy and protection from the enemies. Verses 1 through 3, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in you. No one else. I trust in you. It's a plea of trust and reliance upon God because we know the saints of old trusted in God's mercy. They did not trust in their circumcision. They did not trust in their being born a Jew. They did not trust in the sacrifices or in the temple. The godly of the Old Testament, like the godly of the New Testament, trusted in God, trusted in the Messiah to come, in His mercy, in His strength. And that's why we can go to the Old Testament and read it and say, that's us. If we were in the Old Testament, we'd be like David. Uh, We would believe in Jesus Christ. We would trust Him. We would see our sins and cry out to Him for help in times of difficulty because it's the same religion, religion. The outward forms have changed. The inward reality of being saved and of repentance and of following Jesus is the same. And this is a text like this. And you go through the Psalms, and often the word trust is there in the Psalms. And when it's not there, it is implied. It's implied simply by the fact, what? That he's praying to God. You're not praying to anybody else, right? Where your heart is, there your treasure will be, like we heard about this morning in Sunday school class. And their treasure is in God. That's why they go to him and they ask for help. In this case, not, not the treasure as much as where your source of help is. Where do you go to in times of trouble? You go to God. And that's where your heart is. That's where their heart is. It is evidence, therefore, of their trust and reliance upon God's grace and not their own. Faith alone and Christ alone and, account of, and to the glory of God alone. It's the basis of the Old Testament church. Because the Old Testament church was under the covenant of grace, trust. They were under the covenant of grace and trust. And like us, they only had to trust in God to be saved. God required nothing else of them. And when it talks about do this and live, he's telling them that you are called to a life of holiness. We're all called to a life of holiness. That doesn't change the New Testament. You're saved, and they can do whatever you want. No. And so they are called to obey, and they do obey, although they fall, as we know, as David has fallen, they can still come up again because it is the covenant of grace. We read the Psalms, and we think, I think you think, because I certainly think this way, and I've talked to some of you, this is me. These could be my words. He speaks the same truth as I struggle with, the same things that we have in life and our own sins. And you cry out to God the mercy of the covenant Lord, as again, there it is again, to you, O covenant God, 
I lift up my soul to no one else. Oh my God, I trust in you. This is why I'm crying out to you. And it is a plea of deliverance, not just a plea of trust, but a plea of deliverance. Oh my God, I trust in you. Let me not be ashamed. Let, my enemies, let not my enemies triumph over me. No one who waits on you be ashamed. Enemies, I have people who wish to kill me, and not just me, of course, family, country, his fellow countrymen he loves. Trust of David is directed towards a particular point, in other words, that God would not let his enemies triumph over me. Here is the question. Is this a prayer for us today? Can we read this psalm and we have to think we have to skip over these verses? It's not relevant to me. It's only for David. No, I do not believe that's the case at all. We are taught, however, that humility means being a doormat, and you may be tempted to think that way, as I did for many years of my life. Be hesitant. But I want to encourage you that humility is not being a doormat, but knowing your place before God. And here, as we saw elsewhere in the Psalms, when David cries out for help, that God would vindicate him, he's saying, I am innocent, help me, Lord. That's his point. And we can do that before God, and and we find ourselves at times not able to protect ourselves publicly or in the courts or anything else like that. And so we cry out to the Lord to vindicate us. We are unjustly accused or attacked. And you would certainly do that, I believe, if they went after your family, if, you know, the mobs were there last year, and you would say, I didn't do anything. Why are you attacking my family and burning down my house? Let's go to court. You ought to do that. You've got to protect your family. So it's not an unchristian thing. Plead for mercy before God, let alone the judges of, of the earth, and there's a time to do that. And he does that here, cries out to the Lord for help from his enemies. So what he has here, in other words, is a plea for justice. And I preached on that through Micah, right? <clears throat> and Micah 6 and elsewhere, where God talks about justice. Public justice. Big issue we've had in our society for a long time, and churches ought to speak to that matter to the extent that the Bible speaks to that matter, and here it is speaking to that matter. It's saying when you have problems and you, like David, can cry out for justice. Indeed, let no one who waits on you be ashamed, ashamed for crying out for justice and deliverance from your enemies. Verse 2, let those be ashamed who deal treacherously without cause, presumably those who are unrepentant. The enemies here are most likely, but not always. Some texts we know the enemies are fellow Jews. To kill David, his own son, tried to kill him, as we recall. But often it is the enemies of the church, the Philistines and whoever else, and they are certainly not repentant. So his cry for them, of course, is implicitly, if they're not repenting, then God uh, brings shame upon them in this case. So it's a plea for justice in verse 3. Not just a plea for deliverance, but a plea for justice, I would argue. And so in our innocence, our humility is recognizing that we are innocent, and we should not believe otherwise. Now, you may not be able to do anything much about it, and that's true. And Christ talks about that. You may be innocent with respect to the Roman soldier. What did you do wrong? But Christ said what? Walk the extra mile. They were under occupation. Very little. They couldn't cry out to the judges. The judges were Rome. Rome's like, no, when the soldier comes to you, you will carry their burden because they need help. And Christ says, if they ask you for another mile, walk another mile. So you put up with a lot of injustices, another way of saying that. Church is called to do that to one degree or another. Um, a lesser degree, of course, for public officers. You don't want them to, you know, your church being walked all over from, you know, heretics or whatever else and false shepherds. You want to shut those guys down real quick, obviously. Uh, so, again, David is a public officer, and so his cry for justice is a cry for the church of the Old Testament and the state as well of Israel. So, he doesn't want the enemies to triumph over him. Today, we can do the same, as I pointed out. And, of course, we must have an exercise moderation, as I speak of in turning the other cheek, and of walking an extra mile. Regardless of how serious the problem is or how minor the problem is, to one degree, you can still ask for mercy before God. He may or may not answer in his own time, but he will answer eventually. Second point, plea for mercy. 
Mercy from sins, verses 4 through 11. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. On you I wait all the day. And so here he's crying out to the Lord, and he says in verse 6 specifically about his sin, Remember, O Lord, your tender mercies, and do not remember, in contrast, the sins of my youth and my transgressions. And so in the midst of crying out for justice, he's acutely aware of his own sin. It doesn't stop him from crying out for justice. That's important to remember. Society is telling us to stop that. It's not very Christian. Because David wasn't a Christian. Of course he was a Christian. Anachronism, of course, but he's a follower of Jesus, the Messiah to come. Times to cry out for mercy, even as we acknowledge our own sin. He does acknowledge his own sin, for he is a humble man. The plea here for instruction and pleading for deliverance from his enemies, and that he would not be brought to shame, that there would be justice, he pleads for instruction to show me your ways because he's humble. He wants to learn more of applying God's law to his life, to teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation to be saved by the Lord God above. The Lord of the covenant is to be a follower and a pupil, to learn his word. David wanted to learn his word. Even in the midst of difficulties, he wanted to know, I would think, to apply the law of God to the difficulty he finds himself in to stand firm and to do what he's called to do as a king, as a father, as a fellow citizen of Israel and of the church, as all those hats. And so in playing for forgiveness, he's also playing for instruction so that he can avoid future sins and be better instructed on what it means to be a Christian and to follow his ways, to learn from God. And one thing we can always learn in the midst of dis- distress, as David describes here, tell everybody, one thing you can always learn. Because people ask, and it's a fair question, what is God teaching me through this difficulty? House is on fire. I lost my job. One thing you can always learn is patience. Get what you need or even deserve. Have patience before God and do what you can. Here, specifically in verses 6 through 7, after a plea for instruction, we have a plea for forgiveness. Even though he knows his enemies are unjustly pursuing him, he's still sensitive to his own sins, the sins of his youth even, that he's particularly concerned about. And I think some of us have had that. I have that on my mind at times, the things, the foolish things I did as a teenager, a young man. When I shouldn't have done these things and the effects they have on our lives. He's aware of this. He's human like us. This affects everybody. Christians are acutely aware of it because we take sin seriously because God is a holy God and he takes sin seriously. But he's also a forgiving God and he forgives us our sins. And so he cries out to mercy because he trusts in the Lord. And we too ought to continue to trust in the Lord and read the psalm if we have to. A bookmark it. Remember, O Lord, your tender mercies, for they are from old. That is, they're always going on. They, are, they never fade away. Do not remember the sins of my youth. Remember mercy. Remember judgment, in other words, for me. According to your mercy, remember me for your goodness sake. He cries out to the Lord. He prays for forgiveness because it is offered by God's covenant and by God's grace. In showing me your ways, O Lord, verse 4, one of those ways is not just the law, but also grace, the gospel. The gospel was there in the Old Testament. He can cry out to God because the gospel was there, the good news. That's what the word means. And the good news is when you sin, you can be forgiven and are forgiven as a child of God, and can be used for all of us at any time in our lives. We ought to cry out to God and be able to never hold back. We sung that song this morning, that there should be nothing holding us back of reasons and excuses, but we can always go to God, as David did, and plea for forgiveness and plea for pardon. Verses 8 through 11, God a good and upright is the Lord, therefore he teaches sinners in the way. So he repeats the idea of instruction again, as we saw in verses 4 and 5. The humble he guides in justice. So there we have the idea. And the humble he teaches his way. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth, such as keep his commandment. And in verse 11, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Knowledge is sin again here in these middle verses, his own sin. 
Now the goodness, the highlighting of the goodness of God and the uprightness of the Lord is to show the basis of his plea. God is a good God, and I can come to him because as a good God, he has promised to forgive me of my sins. And a good God will fill that promise. God will not renege ever, ever, ever. He was aware of that. It is good to meditate upon the goodness of God and the righteousness of God, not just righteousness as in a holy and upright Lord, which is true, the Ten Commandments being an expression of that righteousness. Righteous in the sense of, well, part of the Ten Commandments is thou shalt not lie. And God is righteous and not to lie. He is not a man who should lie. And he has promised to forgive you if you come to him and ask for forgiveness. David clings to that promise based upon the goodness of God. And so doctrine, the doctrine of who God is and of the attributes of God, and this is one of the attributes of God. He is a good God, and he has promised his word, and he is good, and he will keep it. And he will guide us to justice, and he will teach us his ways and his path, and that is through the path of repentance, to be sure, his law, and ultimately the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God shall teach sinners in the way. What does that mean, God shall teach sinners in the way? Uh, Verse 8 teaches them repentance, teaches them the grace of God, which is a reminder that David here is acknowledging the best of believers are still sinners, and God teaches them. God knows you're a sinner, and he still teaches you. Why? Because he loves you, and he has grace upon you. Not because you're perfect and more holy than others in that absolute sense of righteousness, that you are struggling and you still have sins cry out for God's name's sake. For your namesake, verse 11, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. David pleads for pardon from his sin. The plea is based upon the name of the Lord, the covenant-keeping God. The keeping part is the promise to pardon our sins, even the great sins. Pardon my iniquity, for it is great. For your name's sake. What do you mean your name's sake? Because God has given his word. His name would be mud, we would say as a man, if he were to lie. And it's not going to lie. We'll fulfill it. He will pardon us, even though it is for his sin. Call upon God, claiming the promises tied to the honor of his name, for his name's honor and duty bound to forgive us. I mean, it sounds weird to say that, but that's what a covenant is. He has bound himself to us in a promise. And we read that in Hebrews and elsewhere where it says God is faithful and just. God is not unfaithful and God is not unjust to remember all, to forget all our good works, it says in Hebrews. It says it in a negative way. Interesting that way, but it's there nevertheless, implying that he would be unjust if he forgot our good works, if he did not have mercy upon us. And cover our sins. Verse 3, plead for deliverance from the enemies. We already heard about the enemies in the first couple of verses, then he talked more about himself in the middle verses, and he picks up the idea of enemies again in the latter part, verses 12 through 22. Who is the man that fears the Lord? Him shall he teach in the way he chooses. He himself shall dwell in prosperity, and his descendants shall inherit the earth. Here we have the plea of the Lord, the Lord, the plea of fear. The plea of fear. David expresses his godly fear as a general proposition. Fear is not anathema to the good news of the gospel, but assumed and explicitly even named, as I preached before, in the New Testament. It is the fear of a child to a parent, not of, uh, of a parent who beats him, but of a parent who disciplines them. And the child does not want to bring shame upon the father, mother, fearful of that. So it's a kind of proper and good fear that a child should have of their parents. A fear of disappointing, a fear of even a punishment which has its place in the Christian life, but ought to mature, of course, to doing it right regardless. A fear of awe, certainly. That's the same philosophy, the ontological distinction here, that you fear like looking down into the depth of, of eternity. It's just so awe-inspiring. It's a lump to your throat. Like, wow, looking down, when you see those glorious pictures, they, more and more of those pictures coming from the satellites, and the deepness of space, it seems like it has no end. 
Imagine being out there in the deepness of space and not seeing Earth. It's just floating forever and ever. It brings some fear upon you. The awesomeness of creation, how much more of God, who's greater than that and more infinite than that. Looking up to a tall, beautiful mountain, intimidating. Feels like me following you. You know better, but it's that fear. That's the kind of fear I mean by the ontological fear of this otherness of God and his might and his power. And so fear is part of not only the Old Testament, but of the New Testament Christian religion, but a fear always subservient to the love of our Lord and Savior. Verse uh, 13, we read, He himself shall dwell in prosperity, and his descendants shall inherit the earth. Who? Who is he? Verse 12, Who is the man that fears the Lord? Him. Who is him? The one who fears the Lord. Shall he teach? Who is he? He is the one who I teach, who is the one who fears. He himself shall dwell in prosperity. Fearing God is a good thing, and it brings about prosperity. Right? That's what it says. It's not going to repeat himself. Verse 12 is the subject. He hasn't changed it. He himself shall dwell in prosperity. and shall inherit the earth. Say, Pastor, are you a post-mill now? Post-millennial? No, I'm not. But I do believe we will inherit the earth. I mean, Christ comes back. The whole universe is ours now. It's a new heaven and a new earth. We will have streets of gold. That's the prosperity promised to those who fear the Lord. And that's the outward prosperity. We have the inward prosperity right now which is a peace of mind and, and the blood of Christ over our souls. We are going to heaven and our sins are forgiven us. Verse 14 is interesting language here. The good of the Lord is with those who fear him, and he will show them his covenants. The secret seems to be parallel with the idea of covenant. Remind you again, often the poetry, uh, Hebraic poetry, a, a hallmark of Hebraic poetry is parallelism. That is the first, called the stick or stanza we would say in English, uh, is parallel to the second stanza. So if you're confused about one word in the first stanza, the second stanza or the prior one will give you clarity of what it is. You say the same thing differently. It's a, it's a rhyme of ideas, not a rhyme of sounds. And so you can say, secret, what's he talking about? Oh, he's talking about the covenant, and he will show them his covenant. It is a secret in one sense because the world cares nothing about it. They care nothing about the, the gospel, the good news of the covenant of grace where God has bow, uh, bound himself to save us, promised to save us in a covenant. Good news. Not for everybody, it's for his people. And then fear is expressed in verse 16 to 17. Turn yourself to me and have mercy on me, for I am desolate and afflicted. That is, the humble and those who fear the Lord will cry out to him for help. They know he's the only person to go to for mercy difficult times. And the troubles here seem more or less to be troubles, again, of his enemies and those who are trying to take him out as the king. A plea for deliverance here in these verses is a plea that we ought to have for ourselves. We feel desolate at times and afflicted. Sometimes you have family problems, to be sure. Issues like that, whatever it is, we should cry out to their Heavenly Father. The psalmist does here. And then the last few verses, verses 19 to 22, plea for deliverance again, specifically from the enemies. Consider my enemies, for they are many, and they hate me with cruel hatred. Verse 19, keep my soul and deliver me. What? From my enemies. People who hate me and hate the church. Many enemies that the church has across this world this day. The church has many, here and abroad, but especially abroad. Our sister churches in Africa and the Middle East, have enemies, and they know the hatred of enemies in the way we do not fully grasp, although we saw pieces of it for the last few years. And in spite of that, our brothers and sisters read this psalm and cry out to God as David cried out to God, and we ought to continue to cry out to God and to remember that there are real enemies that hate us and hate the church. Nevertheless, God is greater than they are. We pray for their salvation, even the nice people. We pray for their salvation. Not nice isn't bringing you to heaven. We know when push comes to shove, they will not support you will not defend the church, defend their own lives, they will defend their own families, their own ways of thinking. At the end of the day, they're not friends of the church, believers. Let them, uh, let me not be ashamed, he cries out to the Lord. He mentioned that earlier in verse uh, 2 and 3. 
right? This idea of shame is not the way we think of shame, I believe. Uh, not of, I feel really embarrassed, uh, you know, I hurt my pride. But as a king of the nation, to lose a battle against an enemy is a shameful thing. It's, you know, what kind of a general are you, right? That kind of thing. So it's not just pride as much as also what's riding upon that, which is uh, the honor of God, for example. Back then, in the ancient Near East, you go to war with your enemies. If you win, that means your God won. And so when Israel is losing, it's very shameful back then, right? The, the, the pagans and the, and the Philistines are like, ah, we beat Jehovah, ha, ha, ha. Kind of embarrassing, wouldn't it? We had that kind of, imagine living that way. That's the kind of world he lived in. And so the idea of shame there is more than just individual, but also collective and broad shame before the Lord. That's why he has a corporate plea here. The corporate plea. Redeem Israel, O God, verse 22, out of all her troubles, out of all their troubles. Not just me personally, but me as the king over Israel. They're at war with me, they're at war with Israel. And I want Israel to be delivered out of all her troubles, not all of her difficulties. And we have the same prayer for the church of God, for our church, for our, our presbytery, for our denomination, for sister churches, all churches across this nation and across the world. Difficulties and troubles they have to plead to God, to redeem them, to continue to sanctify the church, to bring her and make her more holy, and bring her especially out of troubles, bodily troubles. I haven't highlighted this, but it's not a problem to pray before God for bodily troubles. David did. He had physical war praying for. Starvation, hunger, jobs, work, better house. These are okay. These are fine. These are blessings from God. And he says, pray to me for those blessings. But especially, of course, for our souls, that the church would be protected from troublers of our soul. People who bring in lies and false shepherds to tear down the sheep and turn them away from the Messiah. And God will answer our prayers. The prayers of deliverance from injustice, injustice, prayers from deliverance from our own sins, they will be answered. Not in your time, but in God's time. When Jesus Christ returns, it will all be repaired and fixed the way it should be. No matter the problem, no matter the situation, no matter the trial or the issue, no matter what. Pray, brothers and sisters. Always pray for deliverance. Go before our God. We thank you, Lord, for this psalm, for it reminds us, Lord, no matter what's going on, and even the greatest among us, let's just David, a godly and holy man in so many ways, Lord, and the courage that he had to go on the battlefield. And yet he still cried out to you as a humble man, knowing his place before you, crying out for justice from false causes and claims against him, Lord, from his enemies, and also a plea for deliverance from his sin. And may we also follow him as an example in the hall of faith, God. Let's turn to Jesus Christ. In your name we pray. Amen. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be upon you all.